James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Friends, I say to you, the book of James is a very practical book. It talks about how to daily live the Christian faith. He is very, very uh, proactive about teaching how to live specifically as God's people. This is God's word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. When our lives are lived at best, they're lived according to this word. And when they get off track, often it's because we have gotten away from this word. This is the, the inerrant, infallible word of the living God. Will you please stand for its reading? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Um, my second favorite football team, my second favorite professional football team, uh, is, the, is the Green Bay Packers. That's my second favorite team. And there is a, a story told, you know, the, you know the Packers, right? I mean, this is a very storied franchise. It goes back a long, long way. The Pack, as they're called. They, they play football at Lambeau Field, also known as the Frozen Tundra at specific times of the year, the Green Bay Packers. And there's arguably... No coach in all of NFL history more recognizable, no name more recognizable than the name of Vince Lombardi, after whom the Lombardi trophy is named. That's the trophy given to the Super Bowl winner, the Lombardi trophy. So the following story is told for true. I can't 100% confirm that, but it is said. Then on one particular Sunday afternoon, the, the Packers didn't play in their accustomed, excellent way. They were making mistakes left and right, couldn't get it. They were jumping off sides. They were missing tackles. They were having all kinds of problems, and they didn't win. And so the following Monday, the team gathered for practice, and Vince Lombardi gathered the team, and he looked at them, and he said, Gentlemen, this is a football. Any questions so far? And Paul Horning, who was, the, uh, who was the Hall of Fame running back for the Packers, legendary player as well for the Packers, but sometimes a team jokester, Paul Horning raised his hand and he said, um, Coach, um, could you go over that one more time? <laughs> Slowly this time, coach. It seems to me that that's what the season, here you go, Josh. Seems to me that that's what the season of Lent is about. It's about us recognizing that the coach has told us to play and live a certain way, and we have not done as well as he would want us to do. 
And so the Lenten season calls us back to the fundamentals. If you miss tackles, you need to get back to the fundamentals. If you jump off sides, you need to get back to the fundamentals. If you fumble the ball, you need to get back to the fundamentals. In the church, when we begin to get off track, sometimes it's because we've gotten away from the basics. And we need to return to the basics in order to right the ship. What you heard today in the passage is a little different, I know. Most of the year here in this sanctuary, we talk about joy and we talk about happiness and peace and security and relationships. Most of the year, we talk about those kinds of things. But this, this is a time for us to look at the more somber themes of our faith. The Lenten season says, look at your issues. Look at your issues. Don't Focus on your neighbor. Don't focus. Look at your issues, your discipline, your your temptation, your trials, your, your soul searching. Look at your issues, says the Lenten season. Repentance and introspection. This is a time of the year when Christians all over the world are called to what the, door, uh, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard called the sober examination of the interior self. That's what he said Lent was. <laughs> I, had a, I had a friend share with me that he paid a visit to his mother. He went to see his mom, and she's well, well, well on up in years now. Her health is beginning to decline. He told me he walked up to the front door. It was a screen door, and, and, she, and he could see inside. The, the door itself had been open. He said he could see inside, and when he looked inside, he saw her sitting in a chair reading her Bible. And I don't mean just casually reading her Bible. I mean she was down in it and going over this and this and this and this. And so he, he walked in and he said, uh, Mom, um, what are you doing? And she said, I'm cramming for my final exam. <laughs> in a sense, that too is what Lent's about. When I was a kid, um, every now and then we would go on trips. And I remember, and perhaps some of you do as well, seeing off in a cotton field an old barn. Maybe you remember these things. And the barn, on the side of the barn, was painted with these words, Sea Rock City. Remember any of that? Yeah. But there was also another message, and it was painted rather unprofessionally, and it said, prepare to meet thy God. Do you remember those? Drive up and down Highway uh, Interstate 10 East, you'll see signs like that along the way. Prepare to meet thy God. Leslie Weatherhead wrote a great little book called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in which he, he almost paints this picture of us just being one finger opening away from being lost. Prepare to meet thy God. That's the same sort of message I occasionally hear Leather-lunged young men with Bibles scream at me from street corners. 
I'll see them holding their Bible up and I'll hear them say things like, get right or get left. Turn or burn. Prepare to meet thy God. Maybe you've seen that sort of thing. I happen personally, this is me, I happen to, I'm a little uncomfortable with that tactic. That's just me. But it may actually help us to get behind the presentation of the message, the way it's done. It may help us to get behind it and in a more user-friendly, palatable way, understand that it is something we all have to address. Are you ready to meet God? It is something we must address. And the passage of Scripture today gives us some very good instructions of how we might prepare to meet God. And I, as I often do, I've managed to divide that into three sections. And so I want to invite you to look at this passage with me today. And I want us to keep in the back of our head, prepare to meet thy God. Does the Bible have anything to say as we cram for finals, if you will? Just a couple things. First of all, the Bible tells us to resist the devil. That's what it says. Resist the devil. It's an exact quote from out of the, pa- out of the passage. Some of you in this room may remember Flip Wilson, that great American comedian who used to say when he'd done something wrong, he said, the devil made me do it. It was the devil that made me do it. It's helpful for me to realize that the Spirit of God is not just a personification outside myself, but the spirit of evil exists inside of me. This is what the Bible often calls the flesh. But the Holy Spirit of God is also with us as well. And the Holy Spirit of God is not only around us and among us, the Holy Spirit of God lives within us. So you and I have within us simultaneously a spirit of evil, a spirit of the flesh, as the Bible calls it, and we have a spirit of good or the spirit of God. Both of those are present within us. And here's the rule of thumb. The one we feed is the one that will grow. The one we nurture is the one that will flourish. And therefore, there is something of a civil war going on inside you and me. There is the noble and there is the ignoble. There is the selfish and there is the unselfish. There's the good and the bad within each of us. And the one we feed is the one that will grow. There is no, this is not a trick. That within each and every human being, there is this thing that goes on. Some people in the past have painted this picture of the devil sitting on one shoulder and the angel sitting on the other. 
not necessarily crazy about that, but I, I, get, I get it. Within each of us, there's a war. And the, the spirit we feed is the spirit that will grow. If you don't get anything else, get that piece. Now, what do I mean when I say the one we feed is the one will, that will grow? I simply mean that what we allow into us impacts us. Do you believe that? That what we allow into our spirit through what we see and what we do, the things we expose ourselves to, the things like that, what we allow in us is what's going to grow. I love the way the, the, way the Apostle Paul puts it. He says, I live with this spiritual war going on inside me. The things I ought to do, I don't do. And, and the things I ought not do are the things I find myself engaged in doing. Have you ever, do you, can, you, can you resonate with him? <laughs> Have you ever known better than you did? Hmm. There is this thing that goes on within us. I was reading again this week. <clears throat> in the city of Edinburgh in Scotland, there is a famous street. Perhaps some of you in the room have been there. There's a famous street in Edinburgh, Scotland called High Street. And at one end is Edinburgh Castle. That's where the, the queen would stay when she would make a visit, Edinburgh Castle. It sits on a, prep, a precipice, and Edinburgh Castle overlooks the city at one end of High Street. At the other end of High Street is Holyrood Palace. There is, however, one famous house along the street. It's near a tavern, and that house is the residence of the doctor that served as the inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Do you remember that? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, one of the classics in all of literature. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because it speaks directly to the human condition. Dr. Jekyll was a real person. He was a good man. He was an honest and honorable and upright person, but he also struggled with some impulses that made him feel ashamed. Remember that war I said that goes on in us? And, and he wanted desperately to get rid of those things. He wanted desperately, Dr. Jekyll wanted so much to rid himself of all those impulses. And being a physician... Well, he came up with a chemical solution. His thinking was this. If I just had a potion that I could take that would divide my natures and separate my good self from my bad self, Dr. Jekyll, the good, per good self, and Mr. Hyde, the evil self, if I just could take a potion, if there was just something out there that I could take, 
then this could eliminate all this other stuff from my life. So he took that potion. But more and more, you know the story of this, right? But more and more, Mr. Hyde, the evil side of him, took over. And Dr. Jekyll, the good, was lost. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You see... The evil in our lives, the evil we confront, isn't taken away by a potion. No, you see, God has given us a choice. A choice to say no to that which draws us away from God. Remember, remember, the spirit we feed is the one that will grow. The one we nurture is the one that will flourish. Says the old saying, Thoughts lead to choices, and choices lead to actions. Actions lead to pathways, and pathways lead to a destination. The one we feed is the one that will grow. There's a, uh, I heard about the Catholic boy, little teenage boy who went to confession one day and, and the priest said to him, said, my son, have you been entertaining any impure thoughts? And he said, no father, but some impure thoughts have been entertaining me. <laughs> all of us, all of us are tempted and we have the choice to say no to evil not just where it exists out there, but especially where it can exist in here, in my life and in my heart. Resist evil, resist the devil, make that choice. That's the first piece of advice Scripture gives us as we prepare to meet our God. Here's the second thing. Clean up your act. Clean up your act. It's not enough, it seems to me, to just say no to that which takes us away from God. It, it's not enough to just say no. We have to fill the void by saying yes to that which draws us closer to God. You know, you've heard that saying, nature abhors a vacuum. It is true. It is true. It's not enough, friends, to just say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to. That's, I get that, but that's not enough. No, we have to make the decision to fill that void with things that draw us closer to God. Not just say no to evil, but yes to God. The passage we read a moment ago says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Clean up your act. I think that too often, too often, frankly, we have a tendency to be much more aware of what others are doing wrong than of what we are doing wrong. And I understand that. I, I, I do. Because as long as you can focus on what other people are doing wrong, you don't have to tell the truth about the problems you have. It's never, ever as painful on the conscience to point out someone else's fault as it is to turn the camera on you and look at you. 
I think that's what Jesus must have meant when he talked about the the splinter in the neighbor's eye and the, the tree in your own eye. I grew up going to church on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and pretty much every time the door was open. In my formative years, the church was right across the street from from the parsonage. We lived at 266 Mohawk Street in Mobile, Alabama. And on Wednesday nights, we'd have prayer meeting. And we'd sing out of the old Cokesbury hymnals. Anybody remember the old? I promise they existed. And we would always sing certain songs because we had, you know, you choose them kind of times where people would pick their own. One... Of the, one of the songs that seemed to always be, be chosen was an old hymn that said, If I have wounded any soul today, if I have caused one foot to go astray, if I have walked in my own selfish way, dear Lord, forgive Clean up your act. Clean up your act. What are you doing? I don't mean to get terribly personal here, but I do need to nudge you a little. What are you doing to fill your mind and your heart and your life? What are you doing to fill yourself with those things, the things of God? What are you doing? What are you saying to yourself? It's not our job. If I've said this, I've said it 25 times already in this season. It is not our job to decide whether or not other people are guilty. It's our job to look at our lives and see where we're guilty. And then, now listen carefully, and then to have the courage to own our truth. We must confess it to God. Confess it to God is what the Scripture teaches us. Not because God doesn't know it, but because we need to speak it before God. Now, we don't need to go out and telling everybody, oh, we don't have to go do all that. But there's something powerful about owning our truth and speaking it to God, and confess it. And then the Bible says we must repent. That's an old, old, old word in the church. We must repent of our sin. To repent is to feel deep sorrow for what your sin has done to your relationship with others and your relationship with God. I grew up hearing it, hearing it, hearing it. To repent is to turn around and go the other way. Yes, that is true. But to repent is more than just saying, I'm sorry. To repent is to feel, genuinely feel, a sense of sorrow for what your choices have done to your relationships with your friends and your family and your God. That, that, that is repentance. Somebody wrote a little poem that I think sums it up well. Our tendency to judge other people. It goes like this. I dreamed that death came the other night 
and heaven's gates swung open wide. An angel with a bright halo ushered me inside. And there, to my astonishment, stood folks that I had judged and labeled as quite unfit of little worth and spiritually disabled. They were there. Indignant and judgmental words rose to my lips, but never were set free, for every face around me showed stunned surprise because no one expected me there. Our purpose is not to find out what's wrong with other people. It is to what's wrong with my life. What what are my habits? What are my thoughts? What about my life? needs to be corrected. It's the path I'm traveling right now. Is it, is it one that's drawing me closer to God or is it one leading me away from God? Resist the devil. <clears throat> Clean up your act. Stop focusing on other people. And then finally, receive God's grace. You can, you can come up with a lot of dollar and 75 cent words for what is grace and What is the theological understanding of grace? Forget that. Forget that. Grace is God's undeserved love, mercy, and forgiveness. If you can just remember that. Grace is God's undeserved love, mercy, and forgiveness. The praise team, the the band today was great. Now there was a line in one one of the pieces they did that said, He is for us not against us. God is not a celestial policeman standing up there waiting to catch you doing wrong so that he can say, ah, I told you so. I knew that's how. God is not that way. I am so sorry for the garbage you may have been told when you were a child. I am telling you that our God is for us. That's a good place to say amen. Would you just, amen. 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 Our God is for us. Amen. He's not here to beat you up. God's tactic, God's tactic is not, you better get it right or you're condemned. No, the Bible teaches us that God keeps his eyes on us because he just can't take them off of us. How about that? Receive God's grace. God is for you. He is not your enemy. Let me close with this. It was during World War II. This was in Holland. And a Dutch pastor and his family were were hiding Jews trying to spare them the certain death at the hands of the Nazis. They had been hiding several people, and they had been caring for them. And then one night, they heard heavy boots in the hallway and a loud knock at the door of their apartment. When the Dutch pastor opened the door, he found SS soldiers The family had been discovered for what they'd been doing, and they were all rounded up. The pastor, his wife, the children, everybody, all rounded up, 
and they were escorted to the train platform. Then they were placed inside a cattle car, stuffed full of Jews on their way to a Nazi death camp. They were just stuffed in there. And all night long, the train rambled on and on, and they were all jammed in together, hardly enough air, no food, no water. And the children were crying, and everyone was scared. The next morning, the the train screeched to a halt. The door was opened, And all those prisoners spilled out into the bright sunlight. And there they discovered something too wonderful to be true. They were not, in fact, at a Nazi extermination camp. They were in Switzerland. Anybody in here knows your history, you know what that means. Because they were in Switzerland because some courageous person in the middle of the night at a crucial intersection had thrown a switch and changed the train from its destination toward death and fire to Switzerland and freedom. Friends, The Christian faith teaches us that at a critical intersection, we know as the cross. Tune in here. Okay, come on. At a critical intersection, we know as the cross, God made it possible for us to change the direction we've been heading to freedom and to life in Christ. That's why the cross stands at the center, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. At a crucial intersection known as the cross, God made it possible for us to come back to him. But you and I have to say no to evil That's our choice. That's our part. We we have to clean up our act. Don't just say no to evil. Begin to put in your life things that will draw you closer to Christ. We need to do that. We must confess and repent of our sins. And that's all we can do. That's all we can do. That's all we can do. And we humble ourselves before Him. And the old hymn is, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. Lamb of God, I come, I come. I want to invite you today to the intersection, because I know this, we need it. We have to have it. We don't get to bypass the cross. I want to invite you to the intersection. And remember, at that intersection, 
The change was made from death to life. That is what we call Easter. So today, we're going to close our worship by inviting you to come and pray. Somebody saw my t- sermon title today, and they said, you're going to scare us to death, aren't you? That's not how I do things. You're going to scare us to death. No, but I am going to invite you to the intersection. So I invite you, as the music is being played today, to come and kneel and pray. I want to invite you, if you'd like me to come and pray with you, or if you'd like Brother Josh to come and pray with you, I want to invite you just to look up. When you're kneeling down, if you'll just look up, I'll come and pray with you, or he will. But today, friends, you and I are at the intersection. You're invited to come. The altar is open for you now.